And uh, I'm so excited about this series that we are starting today. And it is a series on the book of Jonah. So if you have your Bibles here, whether it's kind of old school or new school, find with me the book of Jonah. If you've got one of these, just about two thirds of the way through the Bible, if you find a whole lot of names you don't recognize, page around there, you'll find all three pages of the book of Jonah. Uh, otherwise, there's no shame in going to the contents page and looking for Jonah and turning straight there. Just put a bookmark in there because we're going to be there for the next five weeks. And what we're going to find is that this book packs a punch. And uh, we're going to be taking a long, hard look at ourselves over the course of the next five weeks. And I'm so excited by what God is going to say to us. Now, we all know that these things have changed our lives, all right? Smartphones have come into our world and they've changed everything about us, whether it's for the good or for the bad. I think the jury's out on that one. But here's one thing I absolutely do love about my smartphone, and that is Google Maps. And while I think phones have gotten smarter, people have gotten dumber, because I sometimes try and get somewhere without Google Maps. And about halfway through, I admit defeat and pull out the phone and input the destination. And then that's how I always get there. So earlier this year, we had an interesting experience. We were on our way to a wedding near the border of Botswana. And just the way we had to get there was drive up the N1 for a few hours and get to kind of what used to be Polkitsa Zidus and turn left and go from there. But the point being, we had to find the N1 and be on the N1 for a number of hours. Now, while I'm very uh, proudly south, uh, I was also very proudly east because I grew up in the Vale and, and you get to love the Vale and everything about it. And for that reason, whenever I want to get into the N1, I don't know if you've ever done this. You put it in your map, right? And it gives you two options. The one option is to go around the N3 all the way to Woodmead and then up on the N1, Right? Whereas the other option, often two to three minutes slower, is on the R24 past the airport in Kempton Park. And because I grew up on the East Rand, for whatever reason, even though it will take me two to three minutes longer, I prefer going that way. All right, so this was a destination wedding. We were away for the weekend, inputs uh, where we were going, knowing that for the first kind of half an hour, 45 minutes, I want to go this way around to get onto the N1. And so we do that, and uh, we get onto the R24, get past the first Edenvale off-ramp, get to the next Edenvale off-ramp, and it tells me to take the off-ramp and turn around. And I'm like, I know exactly what you're doing. You're trying to get me to go on the N3 all the way around the highway. All right, so I'm just going to soldier on going on the, the other highway. All right, because I know best, and this is the way I want to go. Get to the next off-ramp, and it says, no, turn around. And I'm starting to think, it's a bit strange. It'll take me far longer to turn around and get back onto the N3. So I'm a bit of a slow learner. Get to the next off-ramp, turn around. Get to the airport intersection, and there's like five intersections in a row. And every single one is telling me, take it off and turn around. And I'm like, shush. I'm like arguing with the GPS lady. I'm like, I know where I'm going. And when I don't know where I'm going, that's when I'll look you up. But in the meantime, just shut your face, all right? So... Carry on going and you get to the point where you pass the airport, pass Kempton Park and you get to this long straightish curve to the left past the, near the Bronkerspray turnoff and I realize with a facepalm moment exactly why the GPS lady was fighting with me. 
All right, every single lane was gridlocked, parking lot special, and there was nowhere to go. And there was me, I mean, I knew best, right? And she was trying at every opportunity to turn me around. But aren't we like that in life? I know best. I know where I'm going. When I don't know where I'm, when I'm going, then Lord, I might look you up then. But in the meantime, all right, and we, we hear the voice and we read the books, we hear the sermons and there's a little bit of, ah, take this off ramp, turn around. I don't know if you're going in the right direction. No, 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 Lord, I've got this. Shush, I mean, I mean, I know where I'm going. I know what I'm doing. And what I'm hoping this Jonah series does for us, it provides us with maybe a bit of a face palm moment where we realize, Duh, I am on the wrong path. I am going in the wrong direction. I thought I knew best, but I've been so blind to hearing God's voice And I hope that over these next five weeks, God provides us graciously with a moment to stop and turn around and be redirected back onto the path that God wants for us. And we're going to be doing this through this book. Now, we all know what Jonah's about, right? I mean, whether you are a Christian or not, we've all heard about Jonah. In fact, if I to ask you to complete this sentence for me, Jonah and the whale, all right? Some of you are like, oh, it's a fish, it's not a whale. So Jonah and the whale or Jonah and the fish. And this is what we learned in primary school. This is what we learned in children's church. And for us, it is all about the whale. And in fact, if you go on, online and I did this and I looked at a number of kiddies books about Jonah, this is what you get, all right? And it's, it's the whale and the whale is the hero of the story. And there's another slide on this as well. Now, I hope I don't get in trouble for this. I'm not dissing these books. But the point is, we can start to believe that the whole book is about the whale. And we can miss out on the far bigger, more compelling picture of the book of Jonah. In fact, the fish of the whale comes up in two verses. I know it's a short book. But that's the small role that this thing plays. And there's a far bigger story going on that you and I are going to be invited into. And in fact, what we're going to discover, again, if you go to these kiddies books, often these guys are like these cute, like little guys with rosy cheeks and Jonah looks like this friendly little guy and oh, shame, poor Jonah. We're going to find out he is a horrible little man. In every chapter of the book, this image is going to be reinforced to us. And that's where Jonah is going to become a mirror to us. Because while Jonah is a story about one of God's people who had an assignment on his life. And we discover some of the worst tendencies of God's people coming out of his heart. We're going to point our finger at Jonah and laugh at Jonah and realize face palm moment, that's me. So let's dive in here this morning. We are only going to be spending our time on the first three verses. And don't worry, I promise you, uh, we are not only doing three verses a Sunday. We will definitely get through the whole book. But just to start us off, we want to spend some time just establishing some of the groundwork for this book. So let's read the first verse. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. 
Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Now before I read verse 3, let's just look at verse 1 again. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. There's something very interesting going on here. When I was studying at theological college, one of the things they really got us to understand was that when we look at the different books of the Bible, the Old and the New Testaments, they are coming from different genres. And we can't read one book in the same way we read the other book. So for example, in the New Testament, we've got the book of Acts and the book of Revelation. And we can't read Revelation the same way we read Acts. And we cannot read the book of Acts like we read Revelation. Because Revelation is like reading Lord of the Rings and Acts is like reading the Sunday Times. So the book of Revelation has these images of of dragons and beasts and horns. And it doesn't matter what you think about the book of Revelation. One thing we can all agree on is those images are meant to be interpreted responsibly. There's not a real dragon, real beasts. It all means something. Whereas the book of Acts, when it says, you know, the guys got on a ship and they went from this port to that port. The ship doesn't mean anything. All right, it's just a boat. That's what happened. It's history. Luke is a historian, and therefore we take Acts very historical and literal. And then we've got a whole lot of other genres in the book. So we've got history like Joshua and Judges and Ruth, and we've got uh, uh, poetry like Song of Songs and Psalms. We've got wisdom literature like Proverbs and, and Ecclesiastes, all with their own ways of how are we to responsibly read and understand these books. Then we've got the Gospels, which is like this narrative biography. Um, and then we've got a group of books where we find Jonah. Right, so if you've got, whether it's kind of old school, new school Bibles in front of you, what is the book before Jonah? All right, Obadiah. All right, well, what is the book after Jonah? Micah. Now, what do we learn about these books? Let's read the opening verse of Obadiah, another short book, all right? Literally one page back. The vision of Obadiah, this is what the sovereign Lord says about Edom. So the sovereign Lord is speaking and we get a whole lot of words coming from the Lord through Obadiah. Let's turn over the page to Micah. What do we get over there? The word of the Lord came to Micah. What is the opening sentence of the book of Jonah? The word of the Lord came to Jonah. Now, if it hasn't become plain to you, what we discover about the genre of book we're looking at is that it is situated amongst the prophets. And prophets are human beings that God calls to speak his words and his messages, most often to Israel and sometimes other nations. And by this book opening up with these words, the word of the Lord coming to Jonah, with Jonah being situated between all of these prophets, We know that we're dealing with a book which is known as a prophetic book. And we're going to discover that Jonah is a prophet to Nineveh, but we're also going to discover that Jonah, the entire book, the entire story, is God's prophetic word and prophetic mirror to us as well. Now, as we look at verse 1, we see a number of interesting things. One of the things that the commentators, which I'll just Clever people who read the Old, Bar, the Old Testament and the New Testament, they try to help us understand some of the tricky things, especially where we don't know the original languages. 
One of the things that commentators have agreed on about the book of Jonah is that it is full of sarcasm and full of humor and full of irony. And that actually comes out of verse one immediately. It's just not obvious to you and I as English readers. As it introduces us to the central character, this is the person Jonah. Jonah in Hebrew means dove. Now, when we think of the word dove through the eyes of the Bible, what comes to mind? What comes to mind is peace. What comes to mind is God's promise to us. All right, so that's what Jonah means. Son of Amittai, Amittai means faithfulness. And here's what the author wants you to do when you read that line, especially if you've read the book of Jonah before or you've been to children's church. He wants you to read that and chuckle. Jonah, peace, dove, son of faithfulness. What? Because we know that Jonah is anything but. He's anything but someone who is confident in God's promises. He's anyone but someone who is faithful to God. So right on the outset, we are getting an inside understanding of the kind of pattern that the author wants us to read this book with. Recognizing that as God's people, we often are portrayed as one thing and we are living out another thing. And that's going to become so plain to us this morning and in the weeks following. So in verse 2, here's Jonah's assignment. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. So what is Nineveh and the role that Nineveh plays? Nineveh is the capital city of the great Assyrian Empire, one of the greatest empires that has ever been on the face of the earth. And Nineveh is basically where modern-day Iraq is, specifically the city, the old Christian city. You might remember it was in the news a lot, the ISIS, when they came into Mosul. And to understand what's going on here, you need to understand a little bit of biblical history. So we kind of Moving through the sciences today, we've spoken about literature, we're going to talk about a history, and just now we're going to talk about geography. But the Syrian Empire was not only one of the biggest empires, it was one of the most feared empires of the ancient world. Because as they moved across the face of planet Earth, they didn't go around having cups of tea with leaders of other countries and drawing up all sorts of treaties and partnerships. No, the Syrian Empire came in with a famous or an infamous uh, um, violence and cruelty. And not only is this kind of something that was happening in the world of those days, the Assyrian Empire had done exactly that to Israel. Now Israel, by this stage of its history, had been divided into two sections. The northern section, which is called Israel, the ten northern tribes, and the southern section, known as Judah, the two southern tribes. And Assyria had come in, 722 BC, under King Nebuchadnezzar, and completely destroyed the nation of Israel, wiping out forever the ten tribes of Israel. Ten tribes of of Israel, 80% of Jonah's people were destroyed by the Assyrians. Think about the hate. The blood is still fresh on the ground. This is not ancient history. This is not happening in China. This is real to Jonah. His own people destroyed 
by the Assyrians with violence and cruelty. One of the things that the Assyrians liked to do after they took over a city was take its leaders and skin them alive publicly before destroying the rest of the nation with great cruelty and great violence. So when God comes to Jonah and says, hey Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh and preach about his wickedness. That's like getting dropped into Berlin in the middle of World War II and like down with the Third Reich, right? How popular is that gonna be? And that inspires fear into our hearts, right? Now we're gonna talk more about this in a few weeks time. But just this little verse tells us something so important about the character of God. I think we can all agree that this world is a hostile place most of the time. And we've got to look hard to find beauty and love. And for many people, the cruelty and the violence of this world is a good reason not to believe in God. Because the unasked question is, How could God allow this violence to happen? And yet in verse two of the book of Jonah, we've got a God who looks down and sees this this crazy empire filled with violence and cruelty and God wants to do something about it. And he wants to change their ways. And as God always does, he wants to invite them to Repent, he wants to invite them to experience grace and forgiveness and transformation before destroying them. But in that moment, by showing them kindness, God wants to change this violent nation and what is happening in the Middle East at this time. And Jonah happens to be the man. Now, again, remember, this is not a history for Jonah. This is real. This is so real and personal for him. And again, we as a nation, we are familiar with the story where there are maybe entire groups of people that have been responsible for pain and even violence in our lives. And for that reason, it is so tempting to treat the other people with contempt and hatred and fear. And we have a great history as our nation of people who God has called and and pointed out and said, in spite of the hate, in spite of the history, in spite of what happened a generation or 20 ago, I want you to stand up. And I want you to be a reconciling force in our nation. And in that way, many of us, in fact, all of us, are called to be Jonah-like in our lives. But in this case, Nineveh is still a real force to be reckoned with. And we shouldn't be surprised when you read in verse three. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and he headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, which is a coastal port, where he found a ship bounding, bound for that port. And after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee for the Lord, from the Lord. Now, understanding the history, maybe we're like, Jonah, I get you. In fact, I think I'll be doing the same thing. Maybe we started to feel a little bit sorry for Jonah. Now, just to help us understand, I told you I'd give you a geography lesson, just how desperate Jonah was to get away from this assignment and from the Assyrians. Just have a look on this map over here, where Joppa is, kind of midway on the right over there. Nineveh was 550 miles to three o'clock, which equates to about 900 kilometers away. Which direction is Toshish? 
the exact opposite direction. And we look at that and we're like, oh, a few thousand miles, 4,000 kilometers. That's like a hop, skip, and a jump. That's an airplane ride. One day he can get there. You need to understand that as far as these people were concerned, that was the edge of the world. In other words, Toshish was the furthest place he knew away from Nineveh. That's how desperate Jonah was. We also need to remember, Jonah was not just a random dude. He's also mentioned in the book of Kings in the Old Testament. Jesus mentions him as well. This wasn't the first time we hear about him. Jonah was a prophet. And what do prophets do? Prophets take God's message boldly and courageously to the people for whom God has that message. And so when we read, whether it's Isaiah, Jeremiah, or Habakkuk, or Amos, prophets courageously go out, often with a very hard message that is often not received well. For that reason, most prophets experienced suffering as a result of their ministry. Some prophets died as a result of their ministry. So we build up this picture of faithful men of God, boldly and courageously speaking out against the injustices of entire nations. And then we get Jonah doing the exact opposites, even though he's surrounded by all of these great names. Now, did Jonah have every right to hate the Ninevites? Maybe you want to say yes. Did Jonah have every right to fear the Ninevites? I say very loud, yes. But this book reveals that his fear is not the primary reason why Jonah wanted to flee from this assignment. And in chapter 4, verses 2, this is unveiled to us. But Jonah's praying and he says, he prayed to the Lord. Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Can you see? That Jonah is so profoundly impacted by the violence of the Assyrian nation, the loss of his people against the Assyrian nation, that Jonah puts it into his little mental calculator and he concludes that they do not deserve grace. And for that reason, in fact, we read in 4 verses 3, he says, I would rather die then allow them to be in touch with my God because I know my God. I know what my God does. I know my God forgives. I know my God is gracious. I know he's compassionate. I know he turns around people's hearts and entire nations and I don't want that for these people. And so we start to understand just how black Jonah's heart is. That he would rather die and see his enemies Get an ounce of God's grace. Now here's the truth. Jonah thinks he's running for his life. But what we see and discover is that Jonah is running from his life. You see, if we understand well what's going on here, Jonah is being invited into a far greater story a far more compelling picture of God's activity on the face of the earth. 
Jonah's being called to have first-hand experience of the most aggressive nation on the planet, discovering grace and mercy and transformation. And Jonah was invited to front row seats and to participate in that. But going back to Steve and the GPS, I know best, right? I know where I'm going. Redirect, redirect. No, 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 I'm going straight. Redirect, redirect. Ah, ah, ah. I'm going here. I will call on you when I need you. And Jonah is convinced that Tarshish is a better destination for his life and his story than Nineveh. He's convinced he knows best. He's completely unaware how blinded he is by hate, how blinded he is by his presuppositions, by his own story, by his own narrow perspective of reality. He's completely blinded by the fact that maybe God sees a bigger picture. Maybe God does know best. And because of all of that, he is convinced he needs to go to Tarshish and not to Nineveh. This is a crossroads. Jonah versus God. And you and I face that exact crossroad thousands of times a day. You see, in Jonah, we see in him the sin of disobedience. Now, before we judge him too harshly, let's talk about this. Now, when I say, let's take the word dis out of it. Let's just talk about obedience. How many of you hear the word obedience or comes up in your heart? It's like wonderful, flowery, happy thoughts, right? Because some of you are young families with young kids and you hear the word obedience. You're like, Ugh. all right, some of you were those young kids or some of you have bosses. When they think about you, they're like, Ugh. right? So obedience doesn't have positive connotations. In fact, if I had to say to you, just what is a picture of obedience? Maybe I'm the only one here. But when I have this, just what's a picture of obedience? I just picture this like, probably like an eight-year-old little boy or girl, like a girl, little bow in her hair, compliant, ready to say yes, sir, no, sir, right? No opinion of their own, no little cheekiness, no naughtiness, just like yes, and, and no life. And some of you are like, if that's what obedience looks like, I want nothing of it. Maybe you picture like a dog. Now, in my case, obedience and our dog do not go together. But maybe you just you think obedience, and God wants me to be like a dog. Just like, yes, Lord. No, Lord. No, don't go there. Don't have fun. Stay outside. All right. And again, you're like, if that's what Christianity is about, I want nothing of it. But the biblical picture of obedience is so much more powerful and intriguing. It is so not simply about obeying the rules. Getting gold stars, not being punished. In fact, when we look at biblical obedience, it is about trusting the paths that God leads us on are going to lead us towards life and not away from life. And if you think about a path, or if you think about a road that my GPS lady is trying to get me to go down, these roads have boundaries. It's not like the open Arctic, right? Where you just drive in whichever direction you want. A road has a boundary. And so obedience definitely does have boundaries. 
But we interpret that as limitation. God wants us to be this compliant, conformist people who have no joy and no fun. But look at Jonah. He's been invited into something far more eternal, something far more compelling and something far more powerful. We make thousands of decisions every single day where we get faced with this decision. Me versus God. Do I trust my perspective or do I trust God's perspective? Do I think I've got the whole picture on this particular issue? Am I convinced that I know the way to the point that I shush God's voice down? Or am I willing to concede with thousands of decisions every single day, God, I don't have the bigger picture. Tarshish makes sense to me, but I trust you. As I weigh things up, this looks like a better way than that. But I trust you. And as we make these thousands of decisions, our hearts and our attitudes, our behaviors, our characters are transformed to become the kinds of people who are on the path going towards eternal significance and purpose and a far greater adventure in this life. So does obedience mean that I am going to say no to many things that seem like good things to me? And the answer is yes. Let me give you two little pictures to help us understand though what this means. Think of someone in their late teens, early 20s, who has a vision of financial independence and financial freedom. In order to get there, what are they going to do? They are going to restrict their financial freedom for four years. If they reckon that maybe studying a degree, an honors degree, is the path towards their financial freedom. So they are going to say no to buying those new shoes. They are going to say no to going out with their friends every Friday night. They are going to say no to many of the other things that look great and are fun in this world, not because they can be obedient, compliant little people. No, they've got a vision of greater freedom. And for that reason, they are happy to restrict their freedom now. Or think of someone who's maybe in their 60s or their 70s, maybe this has happened to you. You're not feeling well. You go to the doctor. He does a general exam on you. He sits you down with a very stern face and he says, I hate to tell you, but if you carry on living the way you do, if you carry on eating what you're eating, if you carry on drinking what you're drinking and not doing what you're not supposed to be doing, and by that I just mean a couch potato, you can say goodbye to a long time with your grandkids. And so this man or woman has two competing choices. Deep fried donuts or time with my grandkids. And in order to say yes to a far greater, far more eternal freedom and joy, we say no to certain things that in the short term seem good to us. So biblical obedience is not a static picture of good little compliance, boys and girls. The biblical picture of obedience is choosing 
the greater reality of God's story versus ours. Does that guarantee an awesome life? Depends on how you define awesome. Does Nineveh guarantee, and I'm just going to say it because we know it, the American dream. I know we're not in America, but I think all of us are chasing the American dream, right? Does obedience guarantee that? The answer is no, not necessarily. In some cases, obedience is going to lead us towards Nineveh and taking paths of courage and great faith. But I can guarantee you that Nineveh outlasts Tarshish. Nineveh is far more compelling than Tarshish because Nineveh is where God's at. And every single one of us are being called to make those very same decisions. Just this last weekend, I was so amazed. A friend of mine, he's, uh, he's American. He uh, comes from a family of missionaries. He spent 15 years as a missionary in India. Before that, he was in China. And more recently, he's been for a number of years already in Nairobi, Kenya. Now, he's actually preached here and uh, has visited with us a number of times and we've got some exciting partnerships with him. But he didn't learn that kind of life just out of the blue. He learned that from his parents. His parents were career missionaries. And while my friend Joey, he's currently in Nairobi, Kenya, last weekend we had a bit of a family get-together and a couple of big birthdays and some family that I hadn't seen for decades. We're all around and we're having this big celebration and I get told, hey listen, Joey's parents are in town and they're going to pop in for a visit. So I'm so excited because being a young teenager, Joey and I were like brothers and our parents were like just our foster parents. So love Uncle John and Nonnie Pat. So they're coming around. I'm like, what are you guys doing here? You need to understand Uncle John and Auntie Pat, late 60s, early 70s. They have just started a brand new mission assignment in Africa. This at a time where most of their peers and contemporaries are trying to build a life of seashells, Netflix, naps, There's nothing wrong with that, necessarily. What I'm saying is, what gets someone or a couple in their late 60s, early 70s to put that on one side and head towards Nineveh? Embrace a whole new assignment at this phase of their lives. I can tell you now, it is from living this life of obedience and seeing God rock up again and again and again. And nurturing a posture of, I want to see that above all other things. And I want to be part of that above being part of anything else. And so even at this phase of our lives, we are saying yes to Nineveh even if it means our discomfort and who knows what else it may mean. Now, I know that for maybe many people in this room and for most people out there in the world, this makes no sense. But if you're a Christian here this morning, it should make sense to us. Isn't that what Jesus did? Didn't Jesus leave the comforts and the love 
and the perfection, the power and the glory of heaven to come down to this broken, violent speck of dust known as planet Earth, only to be rejected by people he created, live a homeless life, dying naked on a criminal cross, again, which he created. Why did he do that? The book of Hebrews says, for the joy set before him, Christ endured the cross. What was that joy? The joy was the same character that we read about in Jonah chapter four. God, his father, is compassionate. Jesus wasn't obeying like this compliant, joyless little boy. Jesus knew there was a far bigger picture he was being called into. You and I should be so grateful that Jesus obeyed. That he took the full violence of our own sin and our own brokenness upon himself in order to invite us into a far greater story of his kingdom. And that invitation is there because Jesus did what he's calling us to do. In fact, that book in, that verse in Hebrews concludes by saying, for the joy set before me endured the cross and then it goes on and it ends off by saying, he did this so that you and I would not grow weary and lose heart. Some of us have walked towards Nineveh and found it hard. Look back at Tarshish. <laughs> and our friends who decided to go to Tarshish rather, were like, oh, that life looks so much better than mine. We've just done a series on faith where we trust God above all things. And this in many ways continues into this book. So now, where are we with time? We've got some time here. I want to end off by asking you a question. The question is this. Where is God calling you to Stop. Where have you been hearing his voice whispering to you? And like that GPS lady, off-ramp after off-ramp after Sunday after Sunday, alone with your conscience, alone with God, and you just know he's calling you to stop, to take notice of where you are, the decisions you've made, where you're going, hear his voice. Maybe change the journey that you're on. Maybe the thing is calling you to stop are some of your behaviors. And just like heading towards Tarshish, this made sense to Jonah. So maybe some of these behaviors feel good. Maybe they look good to others. But you know, if you're truly honest, you have heard every now and again the still voice of God saying, Stop. I want you to notice that. Maybe the stop is not so much behaviors, but maybe it's a direction. Maybe it's accumulation of decisions that have led you on a path. And again, that path looks good to you. That path makes most sense to you. That path makes most sense to this world. But you know, if you're really honest, that every now and again, you've heard this quiet voice. Stop. 
I want to give you an opportunity to notice that voice. To respond to that voice. Now, this series on Jonah is going to be so much more than stop. But we need to start with stop. Stop and notice. Stop and trust. Stop and acknowledge. I don't see it all. I don't know it all. I don't understand it all. But I choose to trust God, even if it makes zero sense to me. Maybe when you consider your decisions and your behaviors and you consider what God is calling you to stop, or maybe some of the directions you know God has been calling you to embrace, maybe like Jonah, that has left you angry and you're angry with God. How can you possibly call me to go down that road? Do you not know that those Ninevites are cruel? Lord, do you not know that if I go down that road, I may face years of financial insecurity? Do you not know, God, if I go down that road, I may never see certain people again? Do you not know, God, if I go down that road, I may never find someone to marry? Do you not know that if I go down that road and you can complete that sentence, we're angry with God. And I'm hoping that over the course of these next few weeks, we have those face palm moments that God creates in our lives, a bit of a crisis. Where we're forced to just resign, hands up, God. I thought I knew best and I trust you. Now, I don't know what this is in your life. But I just wonder as we've been speaking and as we've been kind of wrapping up our time together, what's been rising to the surface of your consciousness? You've been, ah, not that. Anything but that. That can't be God. Right? Just, what is it? Maybe it is God. Maybe as God says that his word goes out, his spirit empowers the hearing of the word. Spirits is trying to activate something in you. He's trying to call some things to mind. Draw your awareness to those things. What if God has been doing that? And what if the very things you're trying to say, no God, that can't be it. What if it is exact, exactly those things? So we're gonna spend just a few seconds in prayer. Taking notice of God's voice. Recognizing Jonah is us. Choose to stop. And be open to being redirected over the course of the next five weeks. So Holy Spirit, we are all here this morning. Maybe we arrived this morning out of ritual. Maybe we arrived this morning, we really didn't want to be here. Maybe we had better things on our plate. Maybe we arrived here with small faith. But Lord, we are here and we are opening ourselves to hearing your voice. So whatever that thing is that has been coming to the surface of your awareness, stop, pause on that. Give it a name. 
Describe it. Maybe you don't know what's next. And that's okay. We're going to trust that God is going to take us on the what next, the journey over the next few weeks. But it's okay to stop. And it's okay to not know what's next. And so, Father, we thank you that you are so personal and you are so real and you're so direct. We thank you that every single one of us, like Jonah, are being invited into something far bigger than the lives we're living. And I don't know what that means for us. For some of us, the external levels of our life will look exactly the same, but something inside is going to change. For some of us, we've got some big decisions to make. And God, we are trusting your voice and your invitation and the eternal future you're calling us into. The reason we were created. But just to remind you that it is so easy to sit here, have a little power with God and go home, job done. I want to remind you that if God has spoken to us this morning, we need to work with that. One of the best ways that I know of is to do that with other people. We've got life groups. If you have yet to join one, go online onto our app. There's a life group near you. We're going to be talking about this and we're going to be offering support to one another. And I encourage you to do that. If you've got a husband or a wife, speak to them about this. Have this conversation. And Lord, we trust you. We trust you. We trust you. In Jesus' name. Amen.